Welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus, and I'm ridiculously excited about this episode. I sat down with Emily Bazelon, who is a senior editor at Slate Magazine, and she's also the author of Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying, which was published by Random House. We had a fantastic discussion about how the majority of people don't bully, that the word is often overused. However, we all are unconsciously and consciously, for better or for worse, partaking in a culture that condones it. And so it was really good to sit down and talk about diffusion of responsibility and the roles we play in this. It was also just delightful to fawn over Stephen Colbert, since Emily has been a frequent guest on the Colbert Report in addition to co-hosting Slate's political podcast. She also writes on legal affairs and family issues. I always have trouble with um, things like she writes on women's issues and family issues and parental issues, because truth be told, I believe that pretty much means she can write about anything she wants. Luckily, there's never been a time where I haven't been excited to read what she has to write. I'm sure you feel the same way. In fact, I know most people feel the same way since I had several men emailed me and be like, does she have a sister? She has three, and they're all probably too smart for you. Please enjoy my interview with Ms. Emily Bazelon. Welcome to Employee of the Month show, Emily. It's very nice to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. Emily Bazelon is a senior editor at Slate and the Truman Capote Fellow of Creative Writing and Law at Yale University. It's true, at Yale Law School. At Yale Law School. I just want to profusely apologize to no one for that uh, mistake, because I think only uh, you know 500 people will actually know <laughs> the distinction. <laughs> and no one will care. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I apologize to those people, you and my father, who, would, who also went to Yale Law School. I did want to ask you, are your parents lawyers? Your grandfather My father's a, a lawyer, and my grandfather was a judge. Did you have any influence or, or feel any, I don't know, is there something about growing up with that in your background? Like, my parents were both lawyers, and I remember someone ate the Malamars, I don't know if I was like four or five. So we had to state our cases. We had to like build little arguments as to who ate it. And I still feel my older brother got away with it because he's more thoughtful. He's also the favorite child, but he's much more understated. Mm. And I held on to that for about 30 years. And then it like finally occurred to me that it it was potentially possible that I may have eaten Malamars and then I finally admitted to myself that I probably most definitely did eat the Malamars. Ah, but maybe if he ate them too, you would still feel unfairly treated. That is true. Selective prosecution. Selective prosecution. The problem. Okay, good. That is good to know because I I thought about it when I was reading your book because I thought about diffusion of responsibility, but then I just wanted to also ask if, were there any particulars about growing up with a grandfather as a judge and father as a lawyer? Oh, well, my grandfather talked a lot about his cases with us and kind of mm-hmm. took us seriously when we, I was little. I have three younger sisters when we were little in a way that I think was, I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. One uh, conundrum I remember from him is that he would ask if I was ticklish or if I was Jewish, <laughs> as if you could only be one. <laughs> and I would insist that I was both, but he would be tickling me. So it was clear that I was ticklish. It was a little confusing identity question. I love, like, I love on both accounts that he wouldn't have, um, although I thought the blame was proper for the Malamar issue, but I feel like he would have taken you seriously there. And then the fact that he had such a sense of humor. He had a real sense of humor, definitely, yes. It's fabulous, especially for a, a judge. You always have a, a stereotype of them as not being such, but from everything I've heard about Sandra Day O'Connor and even Scalia from Clerks. Oh, Scalia has a great sense of humor. Yes. 
to whatever ends he is deploying <laughs> it. <laughs> he's a laugh a minute. <laughs> right, it's sort of like, yeah, and I didn't mean to say his decisions are a joke, but I, I meant that like off. No, but his decisions <laughs> have really funny lines in them. Yeah. It's part of why he's so effective. He uses humor really well. He does it at oral argument too. Are there particular examples that stick out to you from your grandfather? He was involved in one of the cases about whether you were allowed to smoke on airplanes. Because oh, he wow. was a judge in D.C., <laughs> which is sort of where all regulations and administrative agencies come to live or die. So I remember that really well. I remember him talking about whether people should be allowed to smoke on airplanes or not. And was he for or against? I have no idea. I imagine he was probably in favor of upholding that regulation since that's what happened. But I don't remember his position. I just remember the issues. It's incredible. I feel like now, today, people's um, understanding of that will probably just be from Mad Men. Yes, exactly. <laughs> from the courts. I, yeah, I loved, uh, I read Sticks and Stones, and I thought the book was wonderful. I was speaking to Brian Lair about you last night. I ran, ran into him, and he's been on Employee of the Month, and it also made his career, and I'm hoping it'll do the same for you. Good. I'd love to be Brian when I grow up. <laughs> now, he said that you don't have an agenda and that you offered real solutions. Do you support his propaganda and his claim about you? I do. I don't think I have an agenda, and I'm glad he thought I offered real solutions. I definitely tried. I think that the issue of bullying is one that it's so easy to get lots of self-righteous outrage kind of going. Yes. Um, and, and I was not so interested in that. I feel like that conversation has played out, and I was hoping, and I was actually really pleased, I think this is true, that people are ready for a more complicated discussion of bullying. You know, how are we really addressing it? What is the good that can come out of our heightened awareness? And what do we need to be worried about in terms of how we're, are we punishing kids too much? Are we kind of moving in the direction of singling a few kids out and labeling them as bullies? And when is that really justified? And when, um, when does all the emphasis on punishment as opposed to prevention do a disservice. And when, is it, when does the punishment fit the crime? Like the Malamar's example, that was the, the appropriate punishment. What was the punishment? You, to have to do your case this way and to say why oh, you so ate the cookie. Oh, so just simply explaining. Yeah. There wasn't a, okay, yes. you didn't get you sentenced know, afterward. No, but the point was, you know, who did this and that was it. And I, I mean, that's an obviously benign example, but I think it's a, it's a serious issue here where I find it so strange there's just so many issues on the table. One is parents may have different ideas of what bullying is. Children then translate that, and they have understandably different understanding. And you know, even when we talk about homophobia and uh, prejudice towards Muslims, I mean, part of our larger culture, we can subtly and even unconsciously and not malevolently encourage a dichotomy in how we approach that issue versus maybe mean girls or something like that. So I, I, there's such a broad range of how we even approach the subject. You know, You're right, it's true. And even state legislatures don't agree on a definition of yeah. bullying. They're using 10 different ones, um, but when I was counting recently. Right, so I think that actually settling on a definition is crucial. And I argue for a limited definition of bullying, where what we'd be talking about is bad behavior, physical or verbal abuse or harassment that's repeated over time and involves a power imbalance. But even that doesn't feel uh, simple enough for me. It's the same thing I, f I felt with you know claims about what equals rape, what equals statutory rape is confusing to me and, and assault. I think that those are still open-ended. And even when we talk about bullying this way, I guess there's a subtle line between sort of obnoxious behavior where kids are teasing each other and um, 
bullying. Right, but so I'm arguing that yes, there is a spectrum, but it's actually important okay. to reserve this word with all the stigma I it carries see. and all the discipline. It. Right, so of course we're going to use this word in all its different colloquial uses all the time. It's a colloquial word, right? It's not, it's not a term of art in the kind of sense of like being some jargony kind of word that people feel that they don't own. But in the context of passing laws and suspending kids and prevention, we need to think about what we're actually talking about here. So in that context, I think it's important to have a more limited definition so that we are isolating and, and focusing on the behavior that's really been shown to hurt kids. The, the behavior kids tell us is harmful, yeah. both in the short and the long term, linked to depression and anxiety and suicidal thinking. And then the other thing is it's a manageable problem, right? I mean, when you think of bullying as essentially like a pernicious campaign to make another kid miserable, I think we can all agree that's not something we'd want our own kids to be doing. And it's not something that we can just be like, oh, that they'll work it out on their own. We don't, you know, we can shrug that off. That's just a normal part of childhood. Let's not pay attention, right? We're talking about a more limited set of behaviors that are really a problem and that are a manageable problem that we can actually change our social level of acceptance of and do something about. But that's why I was bringing up the issue of, you know, I was bringing up Muslim slurs and, and homophobia. I was just putting these on the table to say that it's cer in certain schools even that those things may not be considered bullying in the same way. Uh, so, so yes, I think it is all manageable, but we've, we're all not working from the same moral compass and we're not all... See, I don't think that's true okay. either. I okay. think what's important is that you know, Muslim slurs can be bullying if they're repeated over time. And yes. are, or they can just be bad and discrimination. And, and not be called bullying. Exactly. Okay. We don't need to have one word that stands for all these different kinds of harm and aggression, right? We can have different things and we can have prevention programs that address that as well. But we, I think it's important to have different clear categories we're talking about rather than suddenly everything is bullying. You know, so my um, example of this is Lance Armstrong when he had his confessional moment to Oprah. Such a bully. He said, Such a bully. Of course he's a bully. He said, I'm a bully. That was like the easy, safe thing to confess to. He didn't say, I'm a perjurer and I ruined people's lives and I railroaded them and fraudulently lied in court. Although all those allegations seem quite likely and, true, right? And, so like, and made bike shorts fashionable. Yeah, which and is then one of the greatest crimes. Right, and then commit. another example, you know, there have been, in particular, there was a suicide of a girl named Amanda Todd in Canada, and that was talked about as a bully side. This kind of phrase, which I really don't like, which caused there's this direct line and simple explanation, and bullying caused death. Well, in Amanda's case, she had been stalked and blackmailed by an adult online. That's not bullying. No. That's a different kind of crime. It's much more serious. And I don't think it really helps us to be suddenly mushing everything into this one, yes. right? That's, yeah. So that's my point. That's all. Okay. No, that I get and, and appreciate very much in value. And I, I think that I was thinking that even within that, the term of prolonged time, well, how much exactly time and all of these things. Right. So those are <laughs> questions that only really arise if you're talking about punishment, right? Because when I you're see. in the world of prevention, yes. you're not like, oh, well, did that happen more than once? You're like, cut it out, right? Yeah. My, I like the mantra, if it's mean, intervene, 
right? Like we don't have to be worrying about definitions when we're in the moment setting the tone with kids about how we expect them to behave. I love the phrase cut it out because that's all I associate with my mother. Cut it out. Did it work? <laughs> did you cut it out? Did you stop stealing Malamo bars? <laughs> no, I did not. I still eat my dessert twice a day. Oh well. <laughs> I don't steal them. I don't steal them now. <laughs> oh well. It's, it's all better. <laughs> but that is such a parental phrase, yes, cut it totally. out. But that makes perfect sense what you're saying, that this has just to do with when you're looking at the punishment and um, how, to, how to deal with the issue. Right. I mean, the other thing I think is important is kids know that they're not always going to be nice to each other and that there's a certain amount of aggression that's part of growing up. And in fact, they need to practice that, right? Because when yeah. they grow up, it's not all going to be sunshine and puppies and flowers. And so we need in this conversation about preventing bullying to leave them some room to manage their own conflicts, to learn how to argue with people and fight, and to have some yes. realm of behavior where they're not being hovered over and policed. And so if bullying is every mean word that yeah. someone doesn't like, then you're trying to prevent all kinds of you know, just talking to each other that kids do, and that just goes too far. And then I think you lose them, and we need them. Yes, are, are there salient are things that you do that stick out to you with your own kids? So with my own kids, and my you have kids two have, boys. I have two boys, and they have not been victims of bullying. Survivors, I prefer the word survivors. Survivors, <laughs> they are not survivors. <laughs> but what my main lesson that I've absorbed deeply they're from ticklish, my- They're ticklish, not Jewish. <laughs> they're ticklish and Jewish. They would, well, we won't go into what they would choose. Um, they don't like being ticklish, actually. They sort of wish Oh, it's the worst. Ticklish, I'm, right? I'm very ticklish. But they sometimes the try to like decide they're not ticklish. <laughs> anyway, my, my more deep thought- I haven't joined Scientology yet. Right. Oh, no. Um, my more deep thought about my own kids, it comes from a psychologist at Harvard named Rick Weisbord, whose work I really like. And he asks a question whether parents today are prioritizing individual achievement and happiness for their children far more than moral development and a mm. sense of collective good. And I really take that question to heart. So one way I kind of think about it in just an ordinary way is when my kids come home and they happen to tell me they did something kind for someone or they stuck up for someone weaker, am I just as full of excitement and praise as I am when they write a great paper or, or, or succeeded Zumba and or succeeded so exactly <laughs> or like they play a lot of a game called Gaga at school wait what is Gaga so it actually <laughs> turns out it's Israeli in origin it comes from the word to touch lingo so the idea is you're not supposed to touch each other but you touch the ball I don't even really know it's a game you can play with a ball that's somewhat competitive but not over the top and you can play it in like a carpeted indoor gym kind of space like the multi-purpose room is like it's taken over the world. You're gonna hear all about Gaga now that I've introduced you. I, I like that on so many levels that it's like, and it'll be safe because they can play it indoors, but just don't scratch the walls. The, like. the, the ball can like bounce off the walls. Anyway, they're super into it. It does sound fun. If it can bounce off the walls, it sounds yeah, really fun. Right? And it still sounds stressful for parents, I think. Well, but then maybe anything will be stressful for parents. I just meant in terms of the artwork. Oh, the like. artwork. No, you play in like the gym, the school gym okay. where there's no Picasso on the wall. <laughs> Unlike at my house. <laughs> yes, where, where it's lined with Picassos. Precisely. I'm so glad that you intuited <laughs> that about me. That's when you go into journalism. Well, okay, actually, can we segue to another subject I wanted to talk about with Ruth Bader Ginsburg? When I read what she wrote in your interview, I felt like it was nothing. 
it seems oh, benign. Oh, so we should explain what we're talking <laughs> okay. about, right? Yes. So let's let's talk about that a little bit because, and I, I can have you read it because I don't want to misquote her. So you were t t tell us a little bit. You were interviewing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Should we should we preface who that is? We should. She is she Jewish is and ticklish. All right, no sorry. <laughs> I don't she know is that she's ticklish. <laughs> she's Jewish. She's a justice of the United States Supreme Court. And she has a strong feminist record and also a record of um, trying to help people who are low income and of, you know, she's a big yes. supporter of civil rights. So I asked her a question about the lack of Medicaid abortions for poor women. And this is about the idea that Medicaid doesn't fund abortion and where does that idea come from? And there's a Supreme Court ruling that upheld what's called the Hyde Amendment, which was Congress saying that states could choose not to use Medicaid funding for abortion. So Justice Ginsburg said that the ruling about that surprised me. Now I'm speaking in her voice. Frankly, I had thought that at the time Roe versus Wade was decided, there was concern about population growth and particularly growth in populations that we don't want to have too many of. So that Roe was going to be then set up for Medicaid funding for abortion. So that statement got twisted by uh, certain right-wing commentators who wanted to basically use it to attack Justice Ginsburg. And they used her phrase, there was concern about, to suggest that somehow she was endorsing a kind of eugenicist position in which the people who were trying to argue for public funding for abortion were somehow trying to suppress the population of poor people or of black people right. in this country. It was a totally crazy argument. I also don't see how you can get there from her words. And it's, uh, it was an accusation that was so entirely at odds with her record that it was just really hard to take seriously, frankly. And so what do you do with that? Because when I read it, I thought she was being sort of tongue-in-cheek. What I read into it, she was being tongue-in-cheek, and she was talking about a group that she clearly doesn't support and was saying this is a real issue and it's a class issue. Well, the other thing um, is she was talking about a particular phenomenon in the late 70s and 80s. Of mm -hmm. There were Republicans, in particular Nelson Rockefeller, this whole idea of, of population and worries about population. And some of the people who were... Um, concerned about population growth were going up to the edge of thinking of abortion and contraception as a tool for limiting population growth. Not necessarily in a eugenicist way, simply in the way of like we have, remember, this is hard for us to remember because we were little, or at least I you I wasn't like, even, even born littler. yet. I'm, I was, a, I was um, not even born yet. Right, exactly. So, But there was this moment of, oh my God, there are going to be so many people in the world. How can we stop this explosion? It's going to kill all of us. And so she was referring to that history, which again, she wasn't part of that school of thought. Yes. That wasn't her well, that was position. Clear. But historically, yeah. it existed anyway. Sigh. Well, so that, okay, so that brings up three issues. One is how do you feel having other uh, peers in media sort of bully you uh, incorrectly, I think, over this. And I think that's a general issue in media in general, obviously, where they just sort of focus on each other. And um, w what's that like for you when you have people saying, oh, I can't believe, you know, Baslon didn't get... The follow-up question. Yes. So I was horrified by this, not because I cared about the personal attacks on me. You didn't care about that. No, no not really. What I cared about was I, I should have asked her the next question, which she could have clarified for herself. I just felt like as an interviewer, I had inadvertently 
not done my job right and thus exposed her to this ridiculous unnecessary criticism which if I'd said oh what do you mean it would have been clearer I think that she entirely distanced herself from this position and she would have gotten a chance to explain and so I I think that the criticism of me in that moment is fair yeah. now you know you can it, yeah, you it's even said you were imperfect. You said you were I, imperfect. I, I am imperfect. It's hard. You know, you're sitting there interviewing a Supreme yes. Court justice. But I didn't think fast enough in that moment, and I'm sorry that I didn't. And it brings up another issue, though, is that people are going to want to hear what they want to hear. Yes. And it may be simply impossible on a certain level to translate otherwise. I mean, I, I just know, like, I remember I used to do a joke about nannies and how I'd be on the Upper East Side and they'd see all these black and Latina moms with little white babies. And I was like, that's so nice that they adopted those poor white children. And I will never forget when this woman in the audience who was Latina and older looked at me and she did not like the joke. And I think she assumed that I wasn't being ironic even though I'm in a comedy club on stage. And yes. it, it was a horrible moment. Right, right. When you get called on something that you know is not at all what you intended, yeah. it's, that's, that's tough, it's true. And I think with something like this, particularly with the Supreme Court judges in a, in a time where they're so opinionated in one way or another, it seems, or at least being labeled as very strongly conservatively or very strongly liberal, people are going to just read into what they want to see or right. hear. I will say that Justice read. Ginsburg was completely wonderful about this whole thing. She loved the interview. Did, couldn't have cared less about this whole kerfluffle because she knew that it was had nothing to do with her and any position she'd ever taken and was wholly unconcerned with it. So that was helpful to me. It gave me a little perspective. It allowed you to have empathy for yourself? <laughs> it allowed me to remember that the kind of internet explosion of the moment is not always the lasting, <laughs> enduring truth. How about that? <laughs> I just had this like funny moment of like Ruth Bader Ginsburg retiring to have like her own Oprah show where she talked about her favorite things. I feel oh like my god, like... she is not going to do <laughs> yeah. that. I feel like it would be like what would it be? It would be like New Balance sneakers, <laughs> the New York Times, volunteering. Like I just feel like opera. She's super into opera. She's into opera and Shakespeare theater. Yes, she loves the Shakespeare theater. Yes, that's. <laughs> it would be such a limited list. She could only have like three shows. No, you're underselling her. She's just not an Oprah type. I'm not under. I'm. I'm. I'm <laughs> <You're> complimenting <over. laughs> her <laughs> for not not spending too much time on pashminas. I and, see. I see. And, I'm and, not sure she's <laughs> on Pinterest. It's true. Yes. And and cashmere underwear. Um, I really loved in your book t um, so many things, but one in particular was how boys tend to bully more than girls, even though it may seem like girls bully more. And part of the reason I liked that because the flip side is also that boys. Uh, men and women tend to confide more in women. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was very interesting that on the flip side that men tend to bully um, both men and women. Right, and I think we've lost sight of this because there's been so much attention to Mean Girls, and I understand why. It was a girls, good movie. Yeah. A super movie. <laughs> Tina Fey completely has it down in that movie. But also, girls turn on friends in a way that can be really devastating emotionally yes. and lasting feelings of kind of horror with those experiences. I still regress. I still regress. Right? So yes. I think because of that, and also those of us who've had those experiences oh, yeah. tend to write about all these yes. things a lot, and so yeah. those experiences loom large. I think we even tend to become writers. Maybe that's true. <laughs> that's part of it. It also brought up this thing of trying to uh, build is not the right word, but nurture young men and now even young women who are confident but still have empathy. Right. I think that's such a good mix of traits. You're absolutely right. And an important 
it's really important to figure out kids a way for kids to have both. Now, one thing that I think is encouraging along those lines is that, you, so one of the big um, puzzles of bullying and preventing it is how to get the bystander kids to stand which up. Is or do more. Us, which is the, the majority of us. Which is the majority of us. Most bullying takes place in front of an audience, but actually kids yes, rarely intervene. It's like 20% of the time. However, when they do intervene, they can definitely make a big impact. So how do we get more of them? And I think um, one piece of evidence is that the kids who are more confident socially are more likely to step forward, which totally makes sense, but it also shows that you can be a confident kid and still have empathy and express that empathy. Um, and then the question is, how do we reward kids so that more kids take that quite yes. daring step? It's actually really hard to stand T terrifying. up to a bully. I think yeah. we like kind of gloss over that as adults as we're exhorting them to come forward. How many of us come forward and really you know, domineering, scary situations. Yeah. Then the other thing is that for other kids who are less confident but still have a lot of empathy, are there smaller ways they can help? And the answer is yes. We know from kids yeah. who are bullied that when other kids just say, are you okay? Or, you know, check in with them later, that those things can actually mean a lot. I also wanted to ask you about being on Colbert so many times, and I know he's come on to GabFest. He was at the 92nd Street Y. Yeah, that was really fun for us. And you've now been on, what, four times? Five. Five. Not that I'm counting, but no, that no, sounds okay. so fun. It's really fun. They're so um, great at that show. It's like the most normal down-to-earth environment there's like sometimes a little dog that runs around backstage and um that's Paul Danello well there's a couple dogs but I think that's Paul Danello's dog that could very well be <laughs> he's the also case. been a boy you of the know month. all about this um <laughs> I got a dog because I hung out there and didn't, <laughs> didn't realize like you know most offices do not function this way they it's one of the nicest offices I've ever seen it's incredibly friendly I think yeah. that's right and it I I think it comes from Colbert and his I think whole, it does too. Right? But kind of everyone there is like that. It's it's so different from my other experiences of television. It shows how much the top-down uh, has an effect, meaning that he is so uh, thoughtful, highly competent, but but expects his staff to be too, and is still really kind to everyone. I mean, I, I absolutely have never seen that anywhere else where people in television enjoy their jobs. And he, I'm trying to break into TV writing, and then, you know, at the same time, I'm like, I hope that it's for a nice Right, I think that's a big challenge. Person. A lot of times people are divas, and he is really not that way. And I think you're absolutely right. It make, I was talking to the camera guys the last time I was there, and I said, like, is this normal? And they were like, no. no. Other no. than The Daily Show, there is not another place like this. I've never seen that, and, and I mean that for, for really talented people who are really good at their own job. It's a high-pressure environment. I mean, you know, so, but yeah, that place somehow manages to be as good as it is and yet warm. How do, you, how do you deal with that in your own office when you became a boss? Did you have training? I have never, well, I guess I ran double X with Hannah and Megan briefly. I'm not really a boss. Okay. And so um, you've been able to escape having to do pretty that? Pretty much. I mean, I um, I had a moment where we double X, the women's part of Slate, or yeah. the section for women, was separate. And so for a little while, I was running it with a couple other people, but we basically were. It, I, I've never really felt like much of a boss. Even when you're <laughs> editing people's stuff? 
Oh, editing is different kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's true that I have power in that moment, but it's different from having an employee, I think. How, yeah. Explain specifically how. My editing role at Slate, I edit people who freelance for me. Yeah. Um, a lot of them are academics, some of them are journalists or lawyers, and so we're having a, tr a very particular transaction about one piece. And sometimes they write for me lots of time, so I have a long-term relationship with them. But they have a whole separate identity. It's not like I'm, you know, controlling their raises or advancement in life in some way. Right? Well, no, that's not true. Because if you get published in Slate, it can be a really exciting thing and help you, you know, go, go up to the next level in your own career. I mean, that's, that's how you true. started too. Is that someone saw you, knew you were bright, thought you were a great writer, and decided to encourage you to keep writing for them. Or tried to help me help me improve. Yeah. So I guess you're right. I would say that's more like being a gatekeeper, though. Maybe I'm simply ducking my own kind of power here. Yeah. But it's not like I have to write performance evaluations or no. like think about the personnel. I have to think about my relationship with the writer. So one thing I do that maybe is related to what you're saying is um, when I'm working with someone for the first time, particularly academics, because yeah. academics are entering into this different genre, and sometimes they're down for its rules, but sometimes they don't quite get what that entails. I, I, I mean, you're sing you're preaching to the choir. I was a, a dropout of a doctor. I dropped out of my doctor. It's just like a different. <laughs> they're really good at a different kind of thing. And what is that? Uh, <laughs> they are good at looking at the epistemological underpinnings of social stratification, whether it's in mathematics or semiotics. Gotcha. Right. I'm trying. Yeah. Okay. I don't mean to be down. I've had phenomenal teachers. I'm, I'm just teasing. But, I, I, but it can be laborious to read right. um, so their work. Right. So I have a standard email I write in that situation, which essentially says, I am interested in this piece, but it's going to need a thorough scrub in terms of editing. And I'm going to do that. I'll be happy to work with you on it. But I want to make sure beforehand that you are up for responding. And what that means is that when I make changes, you don't have to go for my clumsy solutions. But you can't revert back to your old prose unless there's a really good reason. You should yeah. think of my efforts as my clumsy way of trying to get you to come up with a good fix for the problem that I've identified. But it is interesting as a freelancer hearing from you because I always feel like, okay, what are they really asking? What do they really want? And never knowing, because it's different with each editor. And that's such and a hard thing about freelancing, yeah, right? Yeah, you just feel constantly on the outside. You're not part of the meeting. So it's, I know that they're so busy, you know, be it at Slate or the New York Times or, or wherever it is people you yes. know, are, are, are um, pitching their articles. But you can't help but feel uh, intimidated. And that's not the right way to go in. Right. I guess that's right. I mean, you have to think of it as you're trying to, you hope that the other person is the other smarter brain than yours, yes. who's helping to make your piece better, and that the editor is the one who, because they're inside that world, knows what will fly in that particular, right? I mean, yes. better is a funny word, because it's, 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 Hopefully, it's better in some objective way, but it's also just like, okay, this is what works for Slate. I'm the one who is making that determination for yes. this particular column in Slate. And so I know those rules, and I'm going to try and help you get there, as opposed to like I'm sitting in judgment on you. Well, and then that's the other hard part. So, like, whether it's the Colbert Report or Slate or any place, until you've written there a couple times, I think it's hard to, to, totally, absolutely. to have your piece actually fit 
the, the style. And I just don't think you can get that until you've done it a couple times with someone. Helping. Yes. Right. So, yes, I agree. One of the pieces of advice I always give to people who are trying to break into writing in this kind of freelancing way is to say it'll be much easier for you if you read the publication closely. And, you know, if you want to write for a particular section of X magazine. Read that section. I, you have I, to get it into your DNA. At least that will get you a little bit of the way. I no, feel you don't like think that's so. so pat. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, sorry. No, you've I taken read. my big piece of advice. <laughs> now what am I going to say? I read everything. It doesn't mean I can write for them. And in but fact, do many you things read I, it in a way where you're actually thinking like, example, this is my terrain. Yeah. I've edited for years Slate's jurisprudence column. So if you went and you read the last. Who is that woman also? I never understood why they named it that. Yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> It's like, huh. Horrible. Well, yeah, I get it. Horrible, horrible joke. No, yes. It was, it was actually kind of a good joke. It just took me a minute. Like Who so is many this jokes. Um, exactly. This. So, anyway, if you read the last 50 of those columns that were not by a Slate staff person, mm -hmm. you would see there's like a style and structure they have in common. It's not rocket science, it's just me trying to like essentially have certain elements yes. and you could help your I'm not saying you're going to solve the whole thing but I think it would make it easier for you if you wanted to so you have to do it sort of systematically it's not just like oh I read no, them that I agree like and I can see like as I was using TV writing as an example you can transcribe episodes not your own there writing you but just right. transcribe and episodes. you learn the basic structure the, exactly like the However, rules but and the thing about magazine writing is everyone has a little bit their own rules which that's maybe is where true I in TV writing too well yes but that's where I disagree actually <laughs> where I feel there is more fluidity and should be more fluidity um, in television you're trying to write for someone else's voice mm -hmm. and within magazine writing or newspapers yes you want to generally write within the voice of Slate or within the voice of again the New York Times but it's still your piece Right, so you should be able to keep your voice. To some degree. I agree. I think that's right, if, as long as your voice is good. Not mine. Yes, no, no, yours is, is, would qualify. But I also think you, you um, do that within the kind of, there, there are these confines. And actually, you get to keep your voice more if you do a good job with the structure, yes. Yes. right? Because if all the other elements are there, then you've sort of earned your way to having more of your own. It's I, tricky. It is very tricky because I, I don't agree with the reading part because there are a lot of things I look. I read the New York Review of Books. Well, but I'll, there I mean, is no right, way that I will ever pitch that's them because you <laughs> stopped writing your dissertation. If you had continued, right? I read the New York Review of Books and also I'm never going to be a contributor. Yes, you can, but but if I want to write for a magazine. I read it, and I don't read it in a way of like breezing through it. I figure yes. out what the department is I might want to pitch to, and then I go back and read those as like a stack to try to figure out what that editor is looking for. Yeah, and I sometimes get exacerbated by what seems, I'll think I have it right, and I don't. That's frustrating. <laughs> also, yeah. what you said about doing it a few times is crucial. And yes. if you can get the editor to kind of put up with you time one or yes. two, and the, and you make it through to the end, and it's pretty good, then you sort of have that person's ear, and you have a relationship, and it usually gets easier. And you just get better. I mean, yes, there's just and you like, get better. And then the other person is like, oh, sweet, I made this person better. Or at least, like, this yeah. is faster for me to deal with. OK, great. Is that gratifying to you, too? Oh, absolutely, especially for young women, for me. I tend to be particular because I get a lot more pitches from men and men you know, this is opinion journalism men tend to feel more entitled to assert strong opinions it's, so I, I, I have to do a little more cultivating of young women on that note on a personal note I'm so grateful you came on because it is so even even though I've had Gloria Steinem and Rachel Maddow on the show 
it is so much more difficult for me to get women on the show. Really? That's yes. so weird. Why? Well, it's for exactly what you just They're said. They're slightly <laughs> hesitant about just sitting down and talking with you? I think so. You know, look, it's more of a risk. Huh. But I think of since the get-go, I've had very famous men on. And even with having some incredibly established esteem, in fact, I've, I've mainly only <laughs> had highly esteemed, highly successful women. And even then, it's still a struggle. Well, now that I've been on, it will change everything. It should change no, everything. Well, I don't it, think so. I, I, <laughs> you know, but that is right. That being self-effacing, it does not always work in one's advantage. It's particularly a drag as a because it's much easier socially, right? I think it's actually, you know, I think it's partly being raised in this New England culture. And I also just loved British comedy growing up, too. I mean, it, it's a cultural thing. Yeah, I guess that's right. I, I find um, any other mode to be very <laughs> uncomfortable because I is. just, self-promotion is just such a, I don't, I'm, I don't know. It's it, so like irritating. It. No, no, no. I love, I love interviewing really interesting people. And um, I just have not worked on my logo. And that's been a big issue for me. I got to work on a logo. So if you think of a logo, you'll let us let I'm us know. I'm so bad at logos, but um, I'm honored that you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was freaked out and and uh, about your recent post today. Your your recent do you call it a piece or a post? What do you do? Whatever you would like. On on your uh, recent Torah portion today about the about Eric Toth. Ah, Because I yes. went to Beauvoir as a kid. Oh mm. no, yeah. So we should explain, right? That yes. Eric Toth is this former Beauvoir teacher, DC private school, um, who was on the FBI's most wanted list for allegedly producing child pornography by taking pictures of young boys. Um, and he and I didn't was make just that captured. List. I didn't make that list. I think that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> he was just captured. Now we're laughing. About in Nicaragua, in Managua, Nicaragua. Exactly, after having been on the run for five years, yes. I think. Yeah. How do you cope with that when you have kids that age and young boys that age? That's a good question. You know, I feel like my job as a journalist is to use my stable quite easy life to have the bandwidth to think about upsetting topics, right? I mean, I feel like it's, it's, it's okay to ask yourself to imagine bad things happening when you're not actually dealing with bad things. Now, I say that, I mean, God forbid anything should happen to my own children, and I take positions that sometimes are, um, I mean, I'm sort of anti-vengeance. Not that anyone is pro-vengeance in the moment. Well, no, but I some like people are. No, 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 that's not true. Some people are pro-military. I guess mil so. And, and I do ask myself sometimes, you know, if it was my kids or my family that was at stake, would I see this situation differently? I don't know. But I don't feel like because I have children, I can't bear to think about the horrors of child pornography. I actually feel like it's important to think about them in a way that helps us shape policy, figure out how we want to think about victims in these situations, and how long people who are convicted should go to prison for. That's what I was writing about this morning. Yes. And I, again, it, it, I thought it was interesting that you were talking about does this punishment fit the crime? Will this help this, will this either help this person become a, a responsible member of society or will this help society deal with this sort of person, whichever end you're looking at it. From right. Well, I'm really interested in proportionality, which turns out to be a hard thing to write about. It's not guilt or innocence. It doesn't have this yeah. uh, changing everything I, uh, changing your whole understanding, that man was guilty, no, it turns out we were wrong. It's much more a question of gradation and, okay, people did bad things, but what does that mean about how we should punish them? Um, I'm really interested in that, but I do notice that it is harder to get people to really pay attention to. Now, you seem to have this dream job where you're able to have these nuanced articles that you get to write and 
genuine discussions with your colleagues. It seems like you guys all get along, at least on the um, podcast, because you don't have to laugh at each other's jokes, which I, I think that's a sure sign that you really like each other. <laughs> if we you can just ignore it. laugh at each other's jokes when they suck. <laughs> I think if you can ignore it, that's a really good moment. <laughs> um, are there any drawbacks? I mean, it just seems like so dreamy on the outside. That's so nice of you. You know, of course, I don't see it that way. I mean, I feel right now in particular that I am having a lot of trouble with my own balance, by which I mean that I'm here in New York instead of at my son's field trip today okay. at where the is Pequot he? Museum in Connecticut. But that is where I probably should be today, and I have a lot of trouble right now in particular figuring out how to kind of keep a lid on work so that, you know, it is a little bit crazy to be going around the country dispensing parenting advice while one is not seeing one's own children. That is kind of the fundamental fact of parenting is to be home, and I have just not been home enough this spring. I mean, how do you, how do you, balance it both and even just in terms of making a living I mean I have a friend who recently she works in public health in a very high position and she's a wonderful mother with two sons like you and another childhood friend wouldn't let her over because she has her kid in daycare mm. and didn't want her own children to get sick oh my god <laughs> so and, crazy and it was so obnoxious and but the main the, the most obnoxious part of all of that to me was the idea that someone could choose otherwise yeah. I mean, how, how else will you make a living if you're not Right, working? and don't we have to get past all the judging? I mean, I think what happens... No, I'm judging the, the idea that you're the, having the, a the judging. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there with you. But I, I do think we often are making these moves as parents where we're so unsure of our own choices. And then you make your choice in the way you in, reassure yourself that you had no choice or right. that it was so clearly the better option is to scorn all the other ones. And so... Yes. I think we all do it in small ways, yeah. and and yet when you're on the receiving end of such a piece of scorn, it's tough. My um my story that's sort of like that is that I had a moment with my older son when he was a toddler, and we were at the supermarket, and he was in a charming mood and babbling away from his little seat to the woman who was ahead of us in line, and she was cooing at him and having a great time, and then she turned around and said he is such a sweet child, you must be home with him. <laughs> and he was in daycare, you know, a good 35 or 40 hours a week. And I just, I, I did not know what to say. It was amazing to me that anyone in that moment of time would make such an assumption. Yes. I, I felt both crushed and that it was just my absolute duty to say, well, actually, he goes to daycare full time. Yeah, I can't take responsibility for his thoughtful, uh, charming outlook. Exactly. <laughs> he learned his jokes from his great-grandfather. Right. Or, you know, <laughs> his preschool teachers who also, yes. like, thank God, you know, helped us toilet train him because we didn't know what we were doing. I keep my preschool or nursery school report card on my website as a reference from Bovar, actually, and I highly recommend it. But, uh, but I was raised by uh, multiple caretakers and at the time thought that this was terrible that my mother was working in the Justice Department as a full-time lawyer and now feel enormously grateful for the other people who mm. reached in because I am so much more comfortable with strangers, with mm. people of all different backgrounds. And yet, if you think about your own I don't, do you, have, you don't have kids, right? I have you to go have on kids. a date first. But, okay. But, but after that, I think it just takes one date and then well, you fall in love Well, what I was going to say, though, is, yeah, <laughs> that, that sounds great. I have similar memories, and 
And it's hard if you are then a working parent yes. to think, oh my God, and I felt deserted by my mother. Totally. It's yes. not a good, it's not a, <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. But part of it was also this culture that I grew up in, and I think it was an era too, and you know, where we were just switching from you know parents not being involved the opposite of helicopter parenting right we, you know right. Like we're distant benign neglect benign not neglect so benign. <laughs> was the norm so you have you have this reality that that's how a lot of people were at the time then we're switching into sort of therapeutic age where people are all going into therapy and talking about these things and now even that model of therapy is different now it's much more towards cognitive behavioral and you probably won't go focus in what how did your parents traumatize you right you'll just be things. given your SSRIs and yes and here's off. your 10 steps to stop eating Malamars or whatever it is right, right, um, right. I don't want to speak for other people but but um so I I do I do think about that that you know well I felt neglected or whatever it is but at the same time thank goodness for having these different role models Right, I think that's true. I mean, I am incredibly grateful to my children's babysitter who really, she only works for us now. I mean, she always actually is, because they're school age, my kids are 10 and 13, she only works for us like six or seven hours a week, but our whole lives would be different without her. And she is like Mary Poppins. She is so much more fun and creative with my kids than I am. Yes. And I don't know what we would do without her. I mean, yes. really, I do feel that way. Yeah, and also, I should say, my husband is very much minor, a part of this. minor player in all of this. Minor player, yeah. So he—that's right. That you—you you have a real partner. I have a real partner. I always have. Um, he was as soon as the kids could essentially eat real food. He was super helpful and interested. All right. In the very beginning, when they were nursing, he was yes. like, "I can't really." Give them what they want here, but that's a and long time ago. <laughs> did you ever? Did you ever pose the question that you're like, I'm kind of in the same place, like <laughs> outside um, outside of a very specific element exactly, of food? Exactly. I'm not sure. But that, and like, yet that element is so <laughs> the only thing that matters in that moment. Yeah. Anyway, so yes, my husband has been incredibly involved with them and really gets enormous joy out of our kids and is just around in a way that um, makes my life possible. Because he's a professor? Because he's an academic and also because he just chooses to yeah. lead his life that way. Yeah. I, I would say that all of my male friends are less conflicted about having kids because they enjoy being parents in a way that I think that their fathers may not have had the same opportunity. Some of them were quite nurturing, but not all of them to mm -hmm. the same degree that they can really be involved. Um, and my female friends still struggle enormously mm. um, and then I struggle on the outside of wanting kids but not having them but I, I did like I know there's a lot of controversy over Sheryl Sandberg's book but I did like the idea of not making plans for things you don't have quite yet and I feel that's like such a great <laughs> insight she had that don't leave until you leave yes, yes I agree with that I um, have liked that from the moment mm -hmm. she said it my my other question for you was just financially journalists are not known for being um, rich I was curious, you know, was money ever a factor for you when deciding your, your job choice? I mean, I've been very lucky. I was raised in a really middle class, comfortable home. Yeah. I've never felt like I was um, not going to have enough money. Mm -hmm. I also don't care a lot about making a lot of money, which yes. I think is a good thing if you're going to be a journalist. I just don't, I'm not, I don't see any reason to think that having millions of dollars would make me happier. I don't have expensive tastes. Like, I'm just... I'm really happy if I can, you know, have a nice place to live and send my kids to good schools and have some money to go on vacation once a year. Like, that's, I'm happy. 
Do you think that's also because you've been at a place where you're not in danger of losing your your? I mean, I have friends who work at like the Boston Globe, for example. Oh, you know? absolutely. I think and some sense of stability. Although our whole industry is imploding, so I don't want to. I mean, I'm. I think you don't want to overstate on the other side. Yeah, I'm like <laughs> have too many things to do right now because yes. I'm afraid to say no because it seems like next year I could have nothing to do, and and it's very hard to age successfully in this profession. So I, you know, at some point I'm not gonna. It's just that's what's gonna happen. It's okay. But late youth will take over. <laughs> <laughs> and kick me out the door. But that's a profoundly uh, painful thing to, to hear that in journalism, where I thought we were allowed to have a face for print, right, um, right. You well, know, that yeah. aging is still an issue. It is. I mean, it's not as merciless as TV land, I guess. Yeah, but, but the fact that it's even an issue at all it, it, um, makes me sad. Is that just because it's exhausting or that younger people will do it for less money? Both. And also, there's such a premium on the next, next thing. And at some point, yeah. people lose faith that older adults are going to figure out that next, next thing. Not all of us know how to do um, gaga. Yeah, exactly. And you need someone who really gets gaga. Exactly. Emily Bazelon, thank you so, so much for spending time with me. This was such a, a treat to hear about your job and your career, and I hope you'll come back to Employee of the Month show. If you get to do it twice, that seems like it would be against the rules. I have to tell you that people do come back. Oh, they well, do. it's because you've made it so much fun. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. This is a delight. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Tune in next time. You can do so by subscribing at iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. I want to thank, beyond thank, Brian Fountain, Joel Arnold, Ian Mazoff, Danielle Maviel, and especially all of you listening at home. This has been such a joy to continue to do these interviews with some just ridiculously incredible people. Anyways, thank you very, very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.